0: Amen. So last week, we saw Jesus take 11 of the disciples. Judas has betrayed him. He's taken 11 of his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he there told them that they would soon fall away. And there was Peter saying, I will never fall away. And then Jesus said, you're going to deny me. And he said, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And then the closing of last week's sermon, we saw Judas bringing a crowd out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he has soldiers with him who are carrying swords and clubs. Judas goes up to Jesus, greets him with a slow kiss to identify him in the dark to the soldiers who wouldn't have known who Jesus was. There they seized Jesus And begin leading him back to Jerusalem, particularly as we'll see the high priest's house. Now, verses 53 and 54 are an introduction to the rest of the chapter. So we're going through verse 72 today. Verses 53 and 54 give us a little bit of a a prequel because it focuses in on one, Jesus, and then two, Peter. And then the rest of the chapter takes a scene with Jesus and has it longer. So we get scene one with Jesus and then scene two with Peter. So Mark is giving us an introduction more or less to what's going to happen by focusing on Peter and Jesus in verses 53 and 54. So let's just look at the introduction to this for a moment that Jeff just read. Jesus has now been led to the high priest's house. And he is, the high priest is Caiaphas, by the way, right now, and here at the high priest's house is a group of individuals that Mark lays out for us, the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. Now, that is a particular group of people. When you put those three groups together, chief priests, scribes, and the elders, that forms a political entity and that group is called the Sanhedrin, which some of your versions might say later on down in verse 55. Some of yours might say the whole council. So we're getting an introduction to Jesus, but we're also getting an introduction to the Sanhedrin. So who is this Sanhedrin or the whole council? Keep in mind, Rome is the empire, they are ruling Jerusalem, and yet Jews do not want to submit themselves to a pagan authority. They have no authority but God. And so you have a cultural clash that's taking place with Rome being the greater power, but the Jewish citizens saying, we can't submit ourselves to a pagan emperor. And so wisely, it was either under the Greek empire or the beginning of the Roman empire where the authorities, the Greeks or Romans, realized that they should create a buffer system. And so this buffer system would be a Jewish political party Well, the Jews are religious, so their leaders are going to be religious. So they establish a group of 71 members. That's what makes up this political religious party called the Sanhedrin. And this Sanhedrin functions as a buffer between the Jews and the governing authority. So that the Jews see themselves as submitting to the Sanhedrin, and yet the Sanhedrin is in league with the Romans so that they can sort of be that in-between. They can govern the Jews, and yet the Jews can submit to the Sanhedrin without feeling like they're completely submissive to the Romans. It was a wise political maneuver. Now something about the Sanhedrin, like I mentioned, they had 71 members in it, but all it took was 23 of them to come together to form a quorum. When the quorum came together, they had an authority or they had the freedom to imprison people. They would have their trial and they could render a verdict. However, in terms of punishment, one punishment that they could not carry out was the death penalty. That's because Rome is the empire and they are the governing authority. They don't want other people going around carrying out a death penalty under their rule and reign. That's where Pilate is going to come into the story next week. The Sanhedrin is going to find Jesus guilty. They want him killed, but they can't do it. They have to have Rome execute Jesus. So they're going to put pressure on Pilate. They're going to put pressure on Rome. So they don't have that authority. The second thing about the Sanhedrin is that they are only, according to their custom, the Mishnah, they're only allowed to meet during the day. Daytime hours, no nighttime trials are to take place. And then no trials are ever supposed to take place the day before a Sabbath or the day before a festival. Now, from our study in Mark, we know that this is happening during the week of Passover. So Sanhedrin technically is not even supposed to be meeting because of the Passover. And second, we know that this is taking place at night. They're violating their own code of ethics. So we see corruption written all over this, all right? That's what's happening in verse 53. Verse 54, Mark shifts perspectives to Peter, and you remember where Peter last was from previous, uh, our previous study last week. He was in Jesus' company He was the one who said, I will never fall away from you. And he said, even if I must die, I will not deny you. Those were Peter's last words to us. Then at the end of the sermon last week, we saw Jesus being seized by the soldiers. And it says that somebody took out a sword, started swinging it and cut the high priest's servant's ear. And we know from John's gospel that this is Peter. So Peter's a sword swinger. And here we see him now following Jesus at a distance. So the soldiers seize Jesus. They begin leading him away in the dark. The text says that everybody fled away. So Peter and the rest probably fled into the olive grove far enough away so they couldn't be seen into the dark. But they could turn around and see the lights from the torches and hear the noises from the soldiers. And they could watch the soldiers and that parade that Jesus is now a part of descending off the Mount of Olives down into the Kidron Valley back up into Jerusalem and they would be able to follow at a distance but not be seen. Sorry if my mic is popping, there's nothing that I can do about it now. And so Peter is following Jesus at a distance going to Caiaphas's house, the high priest's house, and he's sitting there in a courtyard and it says that he's at a distance and he's right into the courtyard of the high priest and he's sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Okay, so he wants us to see those two things. Mark wants us to see Jesus who's in the, in the court at the high priest's house and he wants us to see Peter who has followed at a distance and he's down in the courtyard at the high priest's house. Now we move into scene one of the passage here. Scene one is simply Jesus' trial. Verse 55 says this. Now the chief priests and the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, what are they doing? They are seeking testimony against Jesus for what reason? They want to put him to death. Now that's not a surprise to us because we've seen this all the way back to the beginning of chapter 14. If you've got your Bibles open there, you can see in 14 verse one, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and what? And kill him. So since from the beginning of the week, they have been trying to figure out how to get rid of Jesus. So here's why they're gathered together at night. Verse 56, We continue on by seeing that they are looking for people in their court now who can testify against Jesus. But it says here in verse 56, many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they're bringing people in. They're having them take the stand, so to say. Tell us what you heard Jesus say. Tell us what you saw him do. uh, Yeah, what you saw him do. And, and their testimonies, even in front of this corrupt party, are not lining up to give them one consistent story. Now what Mark does is he includes in verse 58 the most famous accusation that people are bringing. Verse 58 says, we heard him say this. This is about the most they can get on him at this point. Verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. Now, you might look at that and you might say, okay, what's the big deal about that? That phrase, made with hands, is a poke in the eye to the Jews. Because throughout the Old Testament, the phrase, made with hands, is a description of idols, And what they are saying about Jesus now is, here is the guy who has walked into the temple complex, looked at this big building that houses the presence of God, and he's saying that this is one big practice of idolatry. He's blaspheming that way. Now that's what they were saying, but listen to what else they said. We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. So here's going to be a supernatural place where the presence of God will dwell and it's not going to be made with human hands and it's going to be built within three days. It's going to take a work of God. This accusation is not true to Jesus' exact words, but it's close. In John chapter 2, Jesus had come into the temple complex and cleansed the temple Now what's interesting, you can study this for yourself and come to a conclusion. That temple cleansing in John chapter two is either the same temple cleansing that we see in Mark which happens at the end of his ministry or it's a first temple cleansing that Jesus has performed so he cleansed the temple twice. John may have front loaded it in his book to provide thematic continuity, we're not sure. You can study it out and see if Jesus cleansed the temple twice. Or if he just did it once. But here's what is said in John chapter 2. These were Jesus' words when he cleansed the temple. The Jews, after seeing him cleanse the temple, said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? These things, meaning cleanse the temple. Jesus answered them, saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body here. So here what Jesus is introducing in the Gospels is the presence of God in himself. In Jesus' ministry, he's already pointing Jews away from Judaism, if you will, which is God's plan for his covenant people in the Old Testament. But Judaism is going to give way to the Messiah. Judaism is going to give way to the true temple to the true presence of God and the true presence of God comes in the person of Jesus. And he says you're going to destroy this temple. You're going to destroy God. But you're going to see that in three days, God is going to destroy death and rise up again. It just went right over top of their heads. Verse 59. None of the witnesses are providing a consistent testimony against Jesus, even about his statement. Their testimony did not agree. And so the high priest stands up in the midst and he asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? So Jesus, keep in mind, he's been led to Caiaphas' home. He's there, he's going through the court scene. People are just throwing out accusations and the whole time he's just remaining quiet. Now why would he remain quiet? More than likely because if he says anything, they are going to get into some sort of legal battle there saying, well, you said this and you said that and that's contradicting this and contradicting that. So there's, there's plan, there's, there's wisdom here that Jesus is exercising and just remaining silent. And yet, Jesus knows his Old Testament scriptures better than anyone. He knows what Isaiah 53 has to say. Isaiah 53 verse seven says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet what? He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus knows that this is for him. And so he goes through this whole procedure of being accused and he's not going to defend himself at all. That's not his purpose here. Now there's a third statement that takes place. Verse 62, the high priest asks him a question about his identity and he asks, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Son of blessed is just another way of saying son of God. Are you the Christ, the son of God? Now where have we seen that language up to this point? That's been Mark's story from chapter one, verse one. That this is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And throughout the book of Mark, we've been sitting back watching Jesus testify to himself as being the Messiah who brings in the kingdom. And we're watching different testimonies about him being the Son of God. Do you remember the first one who attributed him as the Son of God? It was the spiritual world. It was the demons. And Jesus would hush them saying, it's not time for my identity to come out. And now here is the first person who is inquiring about his identity, at least publicly like this in the Gospel of Mark. Are you the Christ and are you the Son of God? Now this is not an accusation. This is simply a question. And notice now that Jesus speaks up. In verse 62, these are the only words that we see from Jesus in this trial. Jesus is asked the question and he says, I am. You have correctly identified me. I am the Christ, I'm the Messiah whom you Jews are looking for and I am son of the blessed, I am the son of God. And now that this is out, he's going to continue with a statement that is if you will, an explanation about his identity. And this statement is going to come down with such force on the high priest right now. Let's unpack it for just a moment. Notice what he says. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus says, I am. And then he says, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now for us, Sounds like, okay, this is merely a description of who you are, seated at the right hand and eventually coming on the clouds of heaven, but there's so much more that's packed into that. What Jesus has done is just drawn upon two Old Testament texts, okay? But what do these Old Testament texts refer to? They refer to judgment. So Psalm 110, verse one, is the first Old Testament. Old Testament text. Listen to the language that is carried in Jesus' statement here. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand for how long? Until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what Jesus is saying is I'm at the right hand of the Father. I'm at the right hand of God. For how long? I'm at the right hand of the Father until my enemies are under my feet, until they're crushed. Okay, keep pushing forward. How does Caiaphas see himself in relationship to Jesus? As an ally or as an enemy? He would see himself as opposed to Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is this very famous Old Testament text that Caiaphas knows about is Jesus saying, I'm at the right hand of the Father until you, my enemy, is under my feet and crushed. Take it one step further. He combines another Old Testament text from Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. You'll see the similarity, the language here. I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days that was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So in the second half of that verse, as it's up there, you can see that there's all kinds of talk about dominion and kingdom, and there's nations that are going to be brought for him before him. And his kingdom is one that is going to go on eternally. It will never see destruction. It's a sense of total domination here. But notice that phrase on the front end. Who is this person? He's the one who has come from the ancient of days. That's God. He's a son of man. And he's coming with the clouds of heaven. This language, these phrases are very familiar to Caiaphas. And he knows that... Jesus is referencing these highly messianic Old Testament texts with his answer and he's saying, that's who I am. I'm the deliverer who's standing right in front of you, the deliverer who will have all enemies crushed under his feet and I'm the one who is going to come in judgment and I will be ruling a kingdom that will never end. So here's Caiaphas having heard this this testimony from Jesus right now, and he just blows a cork. I mean, he cannot handle this anymore. He's heard enough, and it says this in verse 63, the high priest tore his garments. So there's this idea of somebody who is so enraged at what they've heard in Judaism, this could be a practice here, where they just rip their garments off. They, they tear their garments off, and they throw them down. I don't know if you remember... Several Olympics ago, there was a wrestling match with the Mongolians, some of you might remember this, and the coaches couldn't stand what the judges said or how they ruled against their wrestler, and so they come up in front of the judges, and they're standing there, these big bulky guys, and they start tearing off their their uniforms all the way down to their skivvies, and they just threw them down there and were standing in protest demonstrating their rage. And that's similar to what Caiaphas is doing. He's demonstrating the rage that he has towards Jesus right now. So, he says in verse 64 to the Sanhedrin, he said to them, you have heard his testimony and here's the question that's out there. What is your decision? It's such a good question because it's a question that every one of us has to answer. When we are presented with the claims of Jesus, this morning, when you are presented with the claims of Jesus, what is your decision about who Jesus is? What is your decision about him being at the right hand of the Father? What is your decision about him who is going to come back in judgment? You might be seeking Christianity out and you have to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Is he just a guy who lived 2,000 years ago, had a good code of ethics, had people follow him around, told everybody to love one another, be kind to one another, be peaceful? Is that who he is? Or is he the son of God, the Messiah who has come to rescue people from their sins, and if he has come to rescue people from their sins, that tells us a whole lot about ourselves. We are sinners in need of deliverance. And so what Jesus does as the Messiah, as we'll study in the next few weeks, he comes and provides deliverance not by just knocking the high priest off, not by taking out his sword and defeating an enemy, He comes by going to the cross. We were singing about that this morning. He defeats death in that way. Goes to the cross, absorbs the wrath of God towards sin. He dies and then three days later, he's raised again showing that he has victory over death and that anybody who comes to Jesus and believes in him as savior accepts his obedient life as a gift and is spared from the judgment of God the judgment that will come. Earlier in the service, we read from Colossians chapter 1, and in that passage, Christians, you saw that phrase that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. That's deliverance right there. And if you're not a Christian, you are still in the realm of the domain of darkness, needing deliverance to be transferred into the Daniel 7 kingdom of his son. And you only do that by coming to the cross, seeing your sin, repenting of it, and believing in Jesus as your Savior. So there's the Sanhedrin. What's your decision? Verse 64, it says, they all condemned him as deserving of death. So here's the verdict that's rendered. He's blasphemous. What he says is not true. He deserves death. We know that they can't put him to death. They're gonna need the Romans to carry out their dirty work. Now, this should not surprise us because as we've marched through Mark, Jesus has made three predictions up to this point about his death. The third and final prediction is was Mark chapter 10 verses 33 and 34 he told his disciples see we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will here it is condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles we'll see that next week And notice this last phrase, they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. Notice the mocking and spitting because notice where Mark finishes out verse 65. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. So they put something over his face, they punch him in the face and they would say, now prophesy, who who just did that to you? And the guards received him with blows. So we know that what Jesus has said up to this point is coming to fruition, it's coming true. What he says is true. And you also have to step back and look at his statement here in front of the Sanhedrin. Is what he says about himself true, that he is the Messiah, the Son of Man? The answer is yes, he is. Okay, now that's the end of scene one. Jesus testifies to the truth. The decision of these men is total rejection. And Jesus will be handed over to the Gentiles, as we'll see next week. Scene two is Peter's denial. Peter's denial. And this moves along pretty quickly. Verse 66 it says, as Peter was below in the courtyard. Okay, so in your mind, keep in mind, it's nighttime. Peter is there warming himself by the fire. Caiaphas' house is multiple stories, two, maybe three stories tall. Jesus was taken up to the upper level where the Sanhedrin, at least 23 of them were meeting and Peter is down below in a courtyard area. And it says here that Peter is down there in the courtyard and one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Now here's, Jesus was just interviewed by the high priest. Now notice who's coming into Peter's presence. Little servant girl. Little servant girl, and you know that in society, in first century society, this is the least of threats. You have the high priest at the very top. You have men. You have women. You have servants. Now you have a little servant girl. Mark is intentional with his words here. So minimal threats right now in comparison. And she comes in verse 67 she sees peter warming himself warming himself by that fire that we read about at the beginning and she looks at him so she sees peter and she studies him under the darkness of night and now she's a servant of the high priest so she's been in jerusalem that's where she lives and perhaps she has seen jesus and his followers come into the temple complex And notice what she says here in verse 67. Just this statement. You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. And so she drops this statement in the middle of the night against Peter. And Peter, verse 64, says, I'm sorry, verse 68. He denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. You ever been around somebody who's played stupid? (laughs) I mean, That's where Peter is right now. Flat out denies it. But the comment got under his skin because notice what he does. Middle of verse 68. He went out into the gateway. Why would he have gone out to the gateway? Because if her testimony gains traction, he's looking at making a break for it if the soldiers come after him. He's the guy that's looking for the nearest exit and he wants to position himself there. So he goes to the gateway, to the gate, and the rooster crowed at this point. Now remember Jesus' words from last week. Peter, before the rooster crows how many times in the Gospel of Mark? Twice. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So Peter has denied him once, and the rooster crows, and you would think that that rooster crowing would be enough to jolt Peter that he's on the path to denial. And yet it doesn't seem to faze him. Perhaps because he is now more concerned about his own self-protection than anything. Well, verse 69, the girl won't leave him alone. The servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man, he's one of them. But again in verse 70, Peter denies it. Denial number 2. And after a little while, the bystanders now that Peter is standing with at the gate, they say to Peter, "Certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean." Now, if you cross-reference this with Matthew's gospel, One of the things that characterizes the Galileans is the way that they talk. All right, so last week, um, some of you, most of you were here to hear Stephen Ellison talk. Could you tell that he was from a certain part of the country just from the way he talked? He's got a little bit of that southern drawl to him, doesn't he? And and he just kind of kept going on, and now Peter is talking, And he's got a New England accent, if you will. He's from up north. And the people are saying, you are one of the Galileans. That's where Jesus is from. Nazareth up there. Yeah, you are one of them. And notice what happens. Verse 71. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And I think that what, Peter is doing by invoking a curse here. There's kind of a split understanding of this. I think what Peter is basically saying is, send me to hell. This is the curse. Send me to hell if I am one of them. I do not know him at all. Like, let judgment fall on me. The worst of judgment fall on me. I do, I swear to you, I do not know him at all. Now, no more had he gotten those strong words out of his mouth Verse 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. In Luke's gospel, it's very personal in Luke's gospel, we see that wherever Jesus is, he turns and makes eye contact with Peter right when that happens, across the courtyard, And here it is at the end of the chapter, verse 72. He broke down and he wept. That's the end. That's where we've come now, to the end of chapter 14. Now, what do we see here? What can we walk away with? There are at least three characters that we can talk about in this story. There's the high priest The high priest is the one who outright rejects the truth. If you are a non-Christian this morning, you would identify with him. You might not be tearing your vestments apart, your garments apart, but you are agreeing with his conclusion, I don't need Jesus at all. And this text is like a warning sign to you because Jesus has declared who he is. He is at the right hand of the Father, and that means that judgment is coming to those who are opposed to him, and he is going to come as the Son of Man, riding on the clouds, bringing judgment, and setting up a dominion. And so the response, non-Christian, when you hear this, is that you need to draw in closer to Jesus, and you would need to repent. That's what the Bible says. You're standing in the seat of Caiaphas, you're standing in the shoes of Caiaphas, and you're saying, I don't want you. I don't need you in my life. And what Mark is doing here is by showing us all of the predictions that have been made coming to fruition up to this point. He's saying, no, Jesus is who he says he is. And there are at least three evidence that we see in Mark that claim that Jesus is who he says he is. We see his predictions that have been uttered and then have come true. We're going to see here in just a few paragraphs, if you will, that the temple curtain that sections off the holy of holies where the presence of God is, it's going to be ripped from top to bottom. No person is going to come and do that. It is going to be supernaturally torn from top to bottom. And it's God's way of saying, my presence is no longer there. My presence is in Jesus. Here's the new temple Here's where you gather. And one of the awesome themes about temple theology is that who are we and where are we now? We are united in what body? The body of Christ. We're like stones who are being built up into this temple. That's where my presence is. It's no longer there. But the third, and I don't say this lightly, I I think it's an appropriate way to say it, the most damning piece of evidence is that in three days... Jesus is going to rise from the dead showing that he has defeated death and his resurrection is going to validate all of the claims that he has made. If Jesus rises up from the dead as he prophesies, the most difficult, impossible task to face, if he does that and it's true, then surely everything that he has said up to this point is true. So non-Christian, here you're looking at the story of Jesus and you can say, man, I don't know. Anybody can make predictions. We see it all the time. People make predictions. The stock market's gonna fall. We're gonna return back to this and that. And I don't know, maybe. Other people make predictions. The end of the world is coming. Gather up all your stuff. Okay, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe. I'm gonna die and three days later I'm gonna rise. Who's done that? Only Jesus. And so Mark is drawing you in saying, he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. You must repent and believe in him. Second character. There's Jesus. Jesus, in this section, his divine character is being portrayed through his omniscience. And we've talked about this. He predicted that Judas was going to go and betray him. It's happened. He's predicted about Peter deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. You know, you want specifics? There it is. Jesus knows about the sins of his people, he knows that we are fallen sinners. His omniscience knows everything that's going on in your life. And yet, he sees his purpose. Under the will of the Father to come and save us as sinners. He knows us in our sin, and yet He's come to save us and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus in this. So, know this, folks Jesus knew about your sin this last week. It never caught him off guard. He knew about your sin from five years ago, 10 years ago. He knew about your sin from when you were a kid, and He knows about your sin this coming week. It's amazing and yet he chooses to go to the cross to take the judgment for that sin over and over again that's who your Savior is he knows you on that level the chapter finishes out with Peter so let's finish out with Peter who's Peter third character Peter is the one who denies the truth it's not that he doesn't believe in Jesus we know he believes in Jesus nor is it that he has completely, like, written Jesus off. It's that in this moment, he follows Jesus at a distance, and Peter has deceived himself. Earlier in chapter 14, again, his words on the Mount of Olives, I will not fall away from you, Jesus. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. Did he mean those words? Yes, he meant those words. He meant it with all of his heart, but something happened in his life that showed he didn't have the strength to carry through with all of that. Jesus knew that Peter needed a very difficult lesson to learn. Two lessons. You won't be able to find strength within yourself to follow Jesus. Jesus. You won't be able to find the strength within yourself to follow Jesus. Peter's words, even though they all fall away, I will not. Okay, let's see if you can do it. Secondly, the idols of our heart need to be exposed if we are going to follow Jesus to the end. All right, these are the two lessons you won't be able to find strength within yourself to follow Jesus. But secondly, the idols of our hearts need to be exposed if we are going to follow Jesus to the end. Peter did think that Jesus was the most meaningful prize in life. But Jesus could see that there was a greater idol, and the idol that Peter has in his heart is the idol of self-preservation, he, didn't, he couldn't see it until he's in the pressure cooker. He's not yet ready to be used by the Lord until this idol of self-preservation is removed. It has to give way to self-abandonment where he clings to Jesus no matter what he faces. Our lives must be completely surrendered more and more. And as we see sin in our life, we can look at it and say, I'm gonna hold on to that or I'm going to follow Jesus. And for Peter, it was the sin of self-preservation. He wanted to guard himself. So many of you grew up in homes like mine where your mom used to have shelves of canned fruits and vegetables down in the basement. It was a way of preserving those fruits And they stayed right there on the shelf until you were ready to use them. And what happens in our lives is we have that similar tendency. I want to preserve my safety. I want to preserve my resources. I want to preserve my family. I want to preserve my kids. I want to preserve my priorities. But in so many ways, what we are doing is actually putting ourselves on the shelf and not being used by God to the point that when the opportunity comes to be used, maybe we would deny our relationship with Jesus in front of others or cut ourselves off from others so that we never have to explain our Christianity to others. But when Jesus comes into our lives, he's calling us, if you will, away from ourselves, which is actually freedom. We're so wrapped up in ourselves, and Jesus is saying, no, I'm going to show you what it looks like to be freed from the chains of yourself. I'm going to break you free from this chain, break you free from this chain, and break you free from that chain. And Jesus knew that Peter had to be broken from the chain of self-preservation. Why? Because he had more work for Peter to do. As you follow the story of Peter throughout the Bible, It turns out to be a wonderful story. All right, so let's finish there. Turn over to Acts chapter four. Acts chapter four. I'm not sure how long this is after Jesus' resurrection, but it could be a matter of months by the time we get to Acts chapter four. So what I'm saying is a very short window. Acts chapter 4, Peter has denied Jesus, and in this chapter, we see him back in Jerusalem where the high priest has his turf. He goes into the temple, and he heals a lame man. And everybody in the temple complex knew that this lame man was a fixture there. And that there must have been something supernatural that takes place. So Peter heals the lame man and he begins gathering the crowds and telling them about Jesus. Well, guess who's there? The same high priest who tried Jesus. And he has Peter imprisoned this time. And he brings Peter out in front of the religious leaders and look down at verse 10. Verse 10 Peter is asked the question by whose power by whose strength did you do this by what name did you do this verse 10 by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead this is right in front of Caiaphas now again this is Jesus he's the stone that was rejected by you the builders which has become the cornerstone and notice his last statement there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now you look at Peter from Mark chapter 14, outside of Caiaphas' home, denies Jesus. Now you look at Peter in Acts chapter 4, right in front of Caiaphas, and he won't deny Jesus. And Jesus goes on to use him greatly throughout the book of Acts. The change that takes place is a change that God worked in Peter's heart. And you can see that there's no more self-preservation. It's not about holding on to my life. It's about following Jesus faithfully to the end. And so in Mark chapter 14, folks, we often find ourselves here. We find ourselves feeling like a failure, seeing failure, but we see that Jesus is not one who just puts us up on the shelf and leaves us there. The work that he begins in us, he's going to finish. And we move towards Acts 4 and we see his work unleashed in Peter's life and gives us hope for our life. Happened through repentance. Peter gave up his life and followed Jesus. And so here we are where we're either going to die to ourselves and die to our sin, and follow Jesus, or we're going to deny Jesus and follow ourselves. And we come out of Mark 14 with a question. Are we going to follow Jesus this week or not?